Good. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you leading us up here today. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 20 today, if you want to turn there. As you're finding that, I want to just make a brief announcement. I feel like I've been making a lot of announcements lately. Um, If you were here last week, you know that uh, David Lane preached on his birthday. Well, incidentally, tomorrow is my birthday. I intentionally didn't let anyone know because I didn't want to be sung to this morning. Uh, But here's the announcement. If next week happens to be your birthday, uh, please see me afterwards because you will be preaching. (laughs) I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Uh, I often feel like I have to come to the defense of Thanksgiving because we start playing Christmas music in November. Right? It's not that I don't like the other holidays, it's just that I consider Thanksgiving to be the best. And personally for me, it's for a couple specific reasons. Thanksgiving is slow and it's peaceful. Right, there's a parade in the morning, there's some football in the afternoon, maybe you sneak a nap in there somewhere, and usually there's lots of good food. If you've ever hosted a Thanksgiving or a Friendsgiving, um, you might relate to this statement. And we always sort of comment about this after we eat together. We're, we're shocked, I'm shocked, when you consider the amount of time it takes to prepare for Thanksgiving versus the amount of time it takes to eat a Thanksgiving meal, right? It's like four hours, five hours, whatever the time is of prepping versus like 10-minute, you know, race to see how fast you can like eat all of that stuff. Um, You know, and then you sort of sit around after you regret eating that second roll, right? And everyone stops stops talking so much, everyone kind of gets quiet. You know, and then inevitably someone will give sort of a summary statement. You know, some, someone's like, oh, that was really good, or something like that. Um, at least that's kind of how Thanksgiving goes around our house or within our family. Um, there's some definite correlations between that experience and what we're going to look at today in Scripture, or at least I think there are. Uh, Jesus had been talking about the culmination of his ministry for a significant period of time. And then sort of in this whirlwind of a week, everything happens. And in our passage, we find ourselves looking at the apostles sort of sitting around wondering what's next. Maybe not necessarily thinking what just happened was good. And so... um, We're going to look together at Scripture today. Um, In this particular passage, the disciples are together, but they're not necessarily together for a festive meal. All right, let's take a look at it in John chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 19. And uh, I actually have NIV with me today. Normally I have ESV, but I have NIV today in case the words seem different. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side, 
and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So three times in this passage, Jesus says, Peace be with you. And I want to take a few moments together today to look at each of these as I encourage us to be thankful for the peace of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us a clear path. You've given us your words. You've given us an image of yourself and your face. And as we look to it today, that is our desire, that we would see you. I pray, God, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts today and in this room. I pray your spirit would be moving in the homes and in the places where others are listening in. I pray, God, that your spirit would have complete authority and rule in our hearts and in our lives today. If there's things you would speak to us, I pray that we would receive them. And above all, we would ask that your name and your word be exalted above all things. Be here with us now and be our teacher. We ask in your name. Amen. So this story takes place on the evening of Resurrection Day. The disciples have locked themselves into a room. It's, on, it's, it's ironic, really, to think about it. This is the most victorious day in the history of the world. And yet the disciples are fearing and are locked in a room simply because they don't know what's happened. They're likely hoping that the Jewish leaders who just arrested and crucified Jesus aren't coming to take them away and do the same thing to them. Uh, We know that Mary Magdalene has told them that Jesus is alive. And yet we have to assume that they did not believe her simply because of where they are. They're locked in a room, hiding and fearful. If they had believed that he was really alive, they wouldn't be where they are. They would be out seeking him. 
Now, all throughout the New Testament, those who wanted to find Christ found him, right? Except for maybe the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? He always sort of slipped away from them somehow. But those who wanted to see Jesus saw him, even if they had to climb a tree, right? Those who wanted to hear Jesus, those who had ears to hear, heard him. Right? Sometimes those who wanted to see saw him only after having received their sight. So we can say with confidence that if the disciples had gone looking for Jesus, they would have found him. But instead, they're locked in a room. They cowered in fear. And if you think about it, I think it makes sense. Right? They had no idea what was going to happen next. They had associated themselves with someone who was just crucified and buried. And they needed space to figure out what's next. What do we do? We know from the next chapter that Peter goes back to what he knew, which is fishing. They were terrified and they were hiding. And suddenly Jesus shows up. Now, it doesn't tell us this, but I don't think he had a key. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, the story doesn't tell us. Uh, it just says he appeared. I think you could, probably you could probably preach another message about Christ's power in this moment. Right? You could, you could talk about, oh, did he, did he unlock the door? Did he reach through? Or did he come through the wall? Or whatever. Like, I'm going to skip past all of that all the miraculousness of him appearing in the room, and I want to get to what it is that he says. Look again at verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. These are the first words that Jesus speaks to his disciples after his resurrection. It's interesting that these are the words. There's lots of things that he could have said. I want to try a couple with you. All right? So remember where the disciples are. They're hiding in a room. They're fearful. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Jesus shows up. Here's one thing he could have said. He could have said, what are you doing here? right? That's actually what God said to Elijah, right? After Mount Carmel, if you remember that incident, Elijah gets afraid and he runs away to Mount Horeb and the Lord comes to him. Let me read it to you. The Lord comes to him in 1 Kings chapter 19 and it says this, the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Listen to Elijah's response. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and broke down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. I don't know if you can hear it, but I sort of hear the apostles, the followers of Jesus in this room locked behind the door saying a similar thing. 
Jesus says, what are you doing here? They would say, well, they just killed you. That sounds a little funny, right? And we didn't know what to do. And they thought you were going to come kill us too. And so we're hiding. But you know what? That's not what he says to them. He says, peace be with you. I want to try a second one. All right, the second thing he could have said when he showed up and they're hiding, he could have said, you're so foolish. You're so foolish. All right, this was his response to some others in Luke chapter 24. He said, how foolish are you and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Right, Jesus would have been totally right in saying either of those two things to the disciples, but that's not what he said. Instead, he says, peace be with you. He doesn't condemn them for fearing or doubting. He doesn't question their understanding. He greets them with peace. The phrase, peace be with you, was a traditional greeting in that time, still used today, but I don't think he was primarily greeting them. So what I'd like to do is talk with us together about three things that Jesus does in this passage. The first is Jesus speaks peace that addresses fear and leads to joy. Jesus speaks peace that addresses fear and leads to joy. Right? Jesus knew his followers were afraid. And he comes to them with tender compassion. Right? They were afraid the Jewish leaders might bust through the doors and drag them off and crucify them. Or maybe they were afraid of this one who suddenly appeared in a locked room. And Jesus' words of peace to them were meant to calm their fears. It's similar to when he walked on water, if you remember that story in John chapter 6. Right? They were afraid. And he comes to them and says, don't be afraid, it is I. And so Jesus speaks to them, peace be with you. And then he goes on to prove the fact that it actually is him. Right? They knew he'd been crucified. They knew he was dead. They knew he was buried. And he comes and shows the scars that are the proof of who he is. And when they realize it's him, they're overjoyed. I mean, imagine the, motion, the emotions that they went through. Right? They, they loved him. They watched him be arrested and crucified and dead and buried. And they're hiding. And then all of a sudden, it's like, there he is. I can't even imagine the roller coaster of emotion that they were on. He comes to them and he speaks peace that leads to joy. When we come to know the peace of Christ, fear subsides and peace abounds, joy abounds. Have you found that to be true in your life? Is there a peace you've come to know when your heart and flesh may fail? Is there an anchor 
for your soul that allows you to say it's well. Jesus stands and proclaims peace because he has overcome the grave and won the victory. There's something more to him showing them his scars. Right? Not only did the scars prove that it was in fact him, but the scars prove that he in fact was victorious. Right? The sacrifice he made was accepted by the Father, and as Jesus takes up his life again, it is proof of who he is. He is the Lord who holds the keys of death and Hades. Now, I want to ask you this. Did you notice how quickly it was that the disciples turned from fear to joy? I mean, it was like that. If you want that in your life, if you'd like to quickly turn from fear to joy, all you have to do is what they did. So the question is, what did they do? All right, take a look at it again. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together... With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Did you catch it? What did they do? Two pretty simple things. They listened to his word, and they looked at his scars. And so the same would be true for us today if we would want to move from fear to joy. The same is true for us. Listen to his word and look at his scars. If you're living in fear and anxiety about the future, if you've locked people out, and you're trying to protect yourself at all costs. I would urge you to look at Jesus as he comes into the room and says, peace be with you. I urge you to look again as he displays his scars that he took for you. For your sin. He laid down his life in your place and he victoriously rose from the grave. And now he sits in the highest place. So Jesus, who has all authority, comes to us and speaks peace. We have nothing to fear. With wounds to prove he died, the one who overcame death comes and speaks to us the peace of a friend. Let's pick up at verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So as we move on, I want to look at a second thing. Jesus speaks peace that brings purpose and power. 
Jesus speaks peace that brings purpose and power. It's interesting to me that he says the same thing a second time, right? Peace be with you. Now, we know it's not a greeting because he's already talking with them. So, obviously, he's speaking a peace for a different purpose. The peace that he speaks precedes a new purpose for them. In the same way the Father had sent Jesus, Jesus was now sending them. The work the Father gave the Son to do was to provide a means of people being saved from their sin. And the work that Jesus gave to them and to us is to make known the means of someone being saved. When properly considered, their sending and our sending rises to a level of importance right next to Jesus' sacrificial work. His work was the means by which someone can be saved, and our work is to let people know about it. So the peace that Jesus gave them was designed to get them out of that room, right? It was to get them out from behind a locked door and into the world. And the same is true for us. The peace that Christ gives to us ought to send us out of this room to those that we know are in fear and need peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I love it that he doesn't stop at, I am sending you. Right? Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So not only did he speak a peace that gave them purpose, but he also spoke a peace that gave them to the power to be able to work out the purpose he was giving them. This was an intimate moment when he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, I could speak to you even without a microphone and people far away could hear what I'm saying. But in order for me to breathe on you, you'd have to be close. I'm pretty sure that would violate all of the COVID protocols. But here's what I'm trying to say. There is something intimate about what's happening here. If you're willing to let Jesus get close to you, you can experience this power in the purpose that he's called you to. But if you hold him at arm's length and you keep certain things from him in your life, you shouldn't expect to experience the full power of the Holy Spirit in your life for the calling he has for you. But I can tell you this, if you desire that, if you want that, if you want to be known, if you want to be close, Jesus breathes on us 
and we receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. While all believers receive the Holy Spirit, not all believers fully embrace the power of the Spirit in their lives. And so I would challenge us to receive the Holy Spirit. Let it fill you for the purpose that Jesus is calling you towards. Okay, this is the, the part of the message where uh, when I sort of picked this, picked this text, I was like, oh, I didn't realize this verse was in there. <laughs> so verse 23 is a little bit of a struggle for me. I'm just going to be honest about it. I looked at this and I was like, oh my goodness, what do I do about this? Like, can I just skip over this? And I thought that probably wouldn't work. So I spent some time studying this and I'm not sure I can fully explain this to myself, much less you. But I'm going to give it a shot anyway. How about that? So verse 23, Jesus says, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And I can't skip past that. Um, so, So let me start by saying a few things that we know about the whole of Scripture, right, that we know cannot be contradicted. Right? And it's simply this. Only God can forgive sin. Right? And Christ, being God, forgives sin. In Luke chapter 5, after Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. While we have been given authority in certain things, granting or withholding forgiveness is not one of them. Nowhere in Scripture did the apostles receive this power or assume this power or exercise the power to forgive or withhold sins. Forgiveness, excuse me. It's God alone who determines that we are sinners based on his holy law. It is God alone who provided a way for us to be forgiven from our sins. It is God alone who declares us to be forgiven for our sins based on the righteousness of Christ in our behalf. So how are we supposed to understand this verse? Well, as is often the case, the answer sort of lies within the passage itself. All right, Jesus had just finished saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I just finished saying that the work that the Father gave the Son was to make known the means of salvation. And the work that we received, or excuse me, <laughs> said that backwards. The, the, the work the Father had given the Son was to was to reveal the means of being forgiven. And our role is to simply make it known to others. And so it would be right for us to be with someone sharing the gospel, see them receive the gospel in faith, and say to them that their sins are forgiven. Right? Based on what Scripture says. Now, some of you are probably thinking, A man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart, and you're exactly right. 
right? While we can't say that someone is saved or not, what we can say is someone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and responds in faith is in that moment forgiven. And we can also say at the same time, if you were to present the truth of the gospel to someone and they were to not respond in faith, they would in that moment not be forgiven of their sins. All right? I'm going to stop right there, and I'll tell you this. Next time we preach our way through the book of John, someone else will spend more time on this verse, and you'll probably understand it better than you do right now. <clears throat> so, let's continue in verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So the third point is this. Jesus speaks a peace that meets our needs and builds our faith. He speaks a peace that meets our needs and builds our faith. Now, I think Thomas has gotten a pretty bad rap. Right? People remember him for this moment and not necessarily in a good way. <clears throat> I like a few things about the way Thomas approached this whole situation. Right? First, he's very clear about exactly what he needs, even though it's a little bit weird. And then after Jesus responds and provides exactly what he needs, Thomas's response is immediately faith and worship. I also like that Jesus didn't scold Thomas, at least not initially. All right, he, he waited until after he provided what Thomas needed. He could have showed up and just laid into him for his lack of faith, but Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you, a third time. Peace be with you. Put your finger here. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus comes to his people the same way today. He's tender-hearted and compassionate. He completely understands our situation in life. And he speaks the same words to us. Today I believe he would say the same thing to us as he said to Thomas. Peace be with you. Look at my scars and believe. Or maybe more rightly, he would say, peace comes to you when you look at what I've done for you and believe. Well, as I start to wrap up now, I want to make sure we don't miss something that is important. <clears throat> it's implied here, but I think it's important for us to remember 
that this peace is not just something Jesus decides to give away. He earned it. He worked for this peace. It was not cheap. It was not something where he just walked up and said, oh, peace be with you. All right, remember our situation. We're sinners. We've rebelled against God, and there is a judgment against us. We are, the Bible says, God's enemies. And so Jesus goes on our behalf, takes our sin upon himself, lays down his life for us, and makes peace through his death. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 says, he made peace by the blood of his cross. And so he comes to the disciples and he comes to us and he speaks peace because he purchased it for us. And as he displays his scars, he is showing them and showing us a receipt. This is the evidence of the fact that he has made payment for our sins and it has been received. He purchased our peace with those scars, taking our sin upon himself, walking the lonely road of Calvary, Enduring our sin on his back, separation from his father, death, and burial, but resurrection. He won the victory over sin and death and hell. The only reason Jesus is able to come to his followers with words of peace is because he laid down our life to buy it for us. I'd like to invite the worship team up at this point. Uh, We're going to continue remembering. We're going to continue thanksgiving now as we celebrate communion. You should have received the elements.